You are listening to Topics in the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to my series on Tresar, the Minor Prophets. This class is an introductory class, so we're going to be touching on a lot of different books. Each of these books will be treated separately later, so if you miss anything, don't worry about it. Rest assured, we're going to be dealing with it at length in a different class. You can find the source sheets I refer to at the post on understandingsin.com. So you can go to understandingsin.com and look for Introduction to Minor Prophets or Introduction to Tresar. And you'll find a post where we have the following uh, source sheets attached. Uh, one, a timeline of biblical prophets. Uh, two, the different order that the minor prophets appear in the Hebrew Bible, in the Septuagint, and in uh, scrolls found in the Dead Sea area. And third, a sheet that shows uh, Chazal, that is the rabbinic authorities, what they've said about the minor prophets. Chazal is the way we refer to rabbis from the Mishnaic and Talmudic period. Some terms in case you're not familiar with them. Tanakh, of course, is Hebrew Bible. Yehuda, Judah. Churban is the destruction. Bait Sheni, second temple. Bait, house, Sheni, second, second temple. Uh, tefillah is prayer. And of course, as I said, Chazal are the rabbis from the Mishnaic and Talmudic um, period. So I hope you enjoy this class. Please leave any comments or questions on the post at understandingsin.com. So hi, everyone. I'm Miriam Brand. Some of you know me, some of you don't. So just a little bit about me. I have a PhD in Bible and Second Temple Literature from New York University. I do a lot of research on Second Temple Literature, um, Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha, Dead Sea Scrolls. I teach more Tanakh, probably, you could say. Um, so I'm in both. But today we're going to be talking about Tanakh. And we're going to specifically talk about books that I happen to really love, which are Treasar. We're specifically going to talk about not just the individual books. We will be kind of going through the individual books very quickly. But we're also going to be talking about what it means as a collection and what we can understand about the books when we look at the differences in the collection in the different traditions. What do I mean? Let's take a quick look okay, at the order of the Minor Prophets, okay? And you'll see four different orders. Two that have almost no prophets in them and two that have the whole collection. So we have first, first going left to right, we have Tanakh, right? And that's, that's the Tanakh that we have. That's what we call the Masoretic text, MT, okay? And the Tanakh that we have, uh, we all know the order or we're all used to the order. Um, Hosea, Yoel, Amos, Ovadia, etc. Now, what, what's the issue with some of these books? Some of these books are not placed in a chronological order because we have no idea when they are from. All right. So there are times when, so if we look at the timeline, and this is why I gave you like different handouts with each of these things. If we look at the timeline, and this is the timeline for all the prophetic books. Now, I want you to notice how many we think we frequently don't even realize that Treasar exist. We don't even realize they exist as prophets. I taught a course in the Dead Sea Scrolls once. I taught, well, more than once, but I taught one once at, at Stern College. 
and the and the um, the Dead Sea community were really interested in these books, and they would write commentaries on them. A uh, famous one is Pesher Chavakuk. Pesher Chavakuk is a commentary on Chavakuk where they say, really, this was all written about us. It was written about what happened to us, you know, two years ago. Like, really like that. That's how they interpreted these books. Um, so we have Pesher Chavakuk, Pesher Nachum, books from Treasar, not just Treasar, also other books, but, but certainly Treasar. So I taught these in, as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls course. And one of my students came to office hours and she said, so who was Chavakuk? Was he a member of the sect? I said, no, he wasn't a member of the sect. He was a Navi, he was a prophet. She said, no. I said, no, really? And I took out a Tanakh and I showed her. And she's like, no way. And she looks at her. She said, I'm so not believing you right now. <laughs> so it was, it was a bit of a shock to me. <laughs> but a lot of these books are really, have completely um, disappeared from what we, um, what we talk about, right? It, and it hasn't disappeared, though, from our thought and from our tefillah. Our tefillah quotes these books a lot. Our thought, a lot of things, we draw a lot of things um, from these books. You know, how do you do a, a public fast? We take it, you know, we look at Yoel. How, you know, how can you, you throwing your, your sins into the sea, that's an idea that we see in Micha. Right? There, there are certain things that are really unique about these books. Not only are they unique, but they cover the entire history of prophecy in, in Judaism. So we have, or in the Bible, we should say. So if you say, okay, when did these, when did these um, prophets prophesy? If you look at the timeline and you see who prophesied when. So you have prophets in Israel. Now remember, this is also another interesting thing is when we think of the prophets, we think of Yirmiyahu, Yeshayahu, and Yechezkel, right? Yeshayahu, Yirmiyahu, Yechezkel. That's usually, those are the big three. When we talk about the book prophets, the prophets that that wrote, that we have books of their sayings, okay? Now they're all from where? Yehuda. They're all from Yehuda. Do we have, so, and it's not that surprising because if you look at this Tanakh, right, is what you would call a Judean Bible. In other words, it's what we have, the books we have from the survivors. Who are the survivors? The survivors are Yehuda, right, in general, in terms of the way we traditionally think about it, right? The other tribes, not Levi, not Benjamin, not Benjamin but other tribes were exiled and who's left? Us. We're essentially Yehuda, right? And so we have a Bible which has prophets from Yehuda. But of course, as soon as you get to Treasar, that's clearly not true. Of course, Melachim also is not, it's not true. Melachim very clearly follows what's going on in the Northern Kingdom until there is no more Northern Kingdom, right? So it's, it's not, it's not like there's nothing that, that it, there's, and there's the tr- very clear idea that we always have is that we continue the entire nation, right? There isn't this idea after the Assyrian exile, uh, it's um, a common yearning for the return of the lost tribes, and there's a common idea that we as a nation include those tribes. But um, but in fact, the idea is that we don't actually include those tribes. And yet, in Treasar, we have two books from the Northern Kingdom. Which are those books? Those are the first book of Treasar, which is Hosea, and the third, which is Amos. When were these actually written? Let's let's take a look at the the Chazal handout I gave you. Okay, I'll just read it in, in English. So um, our rabbis taught the order of the prophets is 
Yoshua, Judges, Shmuel, Kings, Yirmiyahu, Yechezkel, Yeshayahu, and the 12 minor prophets. Now, of course, part of the problem is that that's actually not our order, right? But that's not what this class is on. So, um, uh, but let us examine this. Hosea came first. As it is written, God spoke first to Hosea. And that's a quote from the beginning of Hosea. But it, so it says God spoke first to Hosea, but literally what that means is this is the beginning of God's word to Hosea, right? But this is clearly understood by Chazal and not just by Chazal as saying that first God spoke to Hosea. In other words, Hosea is, um, seems to be the first prophet. They say, were there not many prophets between Moshe and Hosea? Right? We read about all sorts of prophets in Melachim. There are lots of prophets. Rav Yochanan, however, has explained that. What it means is that he was the first of the four prophets who prophesied at that period. Namely, Hosea, Yeshayahu, Amos, and Micha. In other words, there are, there are four prophets prophesying in the same period, which is before and during the rise of Assyria. And those prophets, Hosea is the first one. And in fact, in fact, in every collection that we have in our order of the minor prophets, you'll see that in both, I shouldn't say every collection, in both the Tanakh and the Septuagint, we start with Hosea. Why do we start with Hosea? First of all, it is clear that Hosea is speaking. Hosea is in the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's speaking just before the, really the rise of Assyria, just as Assyria is kind of on the rise, or actually it's, it's probably during the rise of Assyria. Um, and when Israel is trying to decide who are we going to be with, are we going to be with Assyria or Egypt? This is always a problem in this part of the world. Who do we go with? Do we go with whoever's powerful in the north and in the east, or do we go with whoever's powerful in the south? Because we are not particularly powerful unless everyone around us is weak. Right in 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 in, in Israel, say Israelite history or, or Judaite history, so um, um, that's the problem in Hosea. And since Hosea starts with a pasuk, which could be interpreted as God spoke first to Hosea, they said Hosea must be the first book. Now, why do I care what's in the Septuagint? Why do I care what the order is in the Septuagint? And the reason I care is that the Septuagint was put together by Jews. It also reflects a Jewish tradition. It reflects a tradition in the, the diaspora during the Second Temple period, okay? So what we have in the Second Temple period is when the Tanakh is actually put together as a collection. This is when everyone decides, okay, this is going to be holy, this is not going to be holy. And this is when in, in Alexandria, which is in Egypt, which has a very large, very educated Jewish community that can no longer understand Hebrew, but are they're very committed, you could say, as Jews, that's when they translate these books into Greek and they have their own collection, which is the Septuagint, which includes all of these books and more, other books that they felt were important. So they also have an order for Treasar, and it starts with Hosea, also apparently reflecting this, this, um, this understanding of, of, um, that God first spoke to Hosea, and as opposed to, this is the beginning of God's word to Hosea. So, um, but in fact, in fact, in the academic uh, approach, Hosea is not the first prophet. It's actually Amos who is the first prophet. Hosea and Amos are unique in that they're northern prophets. They're talking to the north. Uh, Amos probably comes from Yehuda. Almost we have these snippets where they, where the, the prophet, uh, where the, the priest in the Shomron says to him, go, go to Yehuda, let them, let them feed you. 
right? And he's from Sokoa. So they think, okay, so maybe he came from Yehuda and he's bothering the Northern Kingdom. But O'Shea is from the Northern Kingdom. Amos is talking at a time of tremendous prosperity. So that seems to be earlier in the time of Uziah. And Hoshea is already talking where people don't know who to side with. Something's happening. Assyria is on the rise. So Hoshea actually seems to be later than Amos. What's unique about these prophets? Okay, what's unique about them? Hoshea is unique in that Hoshea is the first prophet to talk about Israel as the spouse of God. Right? He's the first prophet to do that. He's the first. Why, why do not say that Hoshea is first if it's clearer than Amos? It's not that clear that Amos is first. Why is it clear that Amos is first? It's only clear that Amos is first if you look at the um, the spirit of the times. Amos seems to be talking in a time of tremendous prosperity, where the problem is that there are very wealthy people who are not thinking about the poor at all, who regularly oppress the poor and just don't care, but there are very wealthy people, and they feel very secure, Right? And people are wishing for the day of, of the day of the Lord because it's going to be great. And Amos is like, no, you guys, it's a disaster, right? In Hosea, everyone is very, very uncertain. And it seems like Hosea is dealing with the rise of Assyria, where he says, remember, he says, he says, yeah, you know, don't, you're not going to ride on a horse, we're not going, we shouldn't side with Egypt. They're, they're trying to decide who are we going to ally ourselves with. So if you kind of read the book and feel the spirit of the book, you can say, ah, it must be that. Amos is talking, but they're both in around the same period. So you could conceivably still say that Hosea is first. And you have this great verse to start with that God first spoke to Hosea, right? That, you know, which can be translated either way. So, um, and, and so, and we see that, that this is not just Chazal who thought this, but also the Alexandrian Jews thought this, and we start with Hosea. Yoel is a book that's really weird because Yoel has no date. It seems to be clearly from Yehuda. It actually seems to be talking, on the one hand, it looks back at a korban, on the one hand, it looks back at a korban, and yet it's talking about a reality where there's a beta mikdash that is functioning well, that you don't have to worry about. So some people actually consider Yoel very late. They think that it may be, may be written during by, by Cheney. Why is Yoel placed in between, in our Tanakh, why is Yoel placed between Hosea and Amos? And the answer is because they didn't know where to put it, in terms of a timeline, there was no clear date for it, and there's a there's a um, literary connection. So if we look at, if we look at, I'll read it for you in just just a second. Hold on. <clears throat> so Hosea ends with, actually, you know what? Let, let me just say a few words about about Hosea before I move on to y'all. Um, Hosea, um, again, I said Hosea is the first prophet to talk about Israel as the spouse of God, to talk about the relationship between God and the people as a relationship between lovers or spouses, right? You can say, oh, well, we have Shir Shirim, so you put Shir Shirim aside, but in terms of prophecy, um, and the dating Shir Shirim aside, but in terms of prophecy, he's the first prophet to see that as a relationship, not father and son, not lord and servant, but a husband and a wife. And part of the reason that he needs to do that is because of the situation in Israel. What is what is Hosea fighting in the in the Northern Kingdom? There's an idea in the Northern Kingdom. Who are they worshiping in the Northern Kingdom? Anyone? Baal, Baal, the storm god. Right? You need rain, worship Baal. You don't need rain right now. You can worship 
the Lord, Hashem, right? You, you don't, they, and they don't see a problem with it. They said, let's just worship both. What's the big deal? When we need rain, we're going to worship Baal. So you need a good explanation for why you cannot do that. So if you talk to a man, he's talking to men, he says to a man, he says, can your wife just go off with another man when she needs him? And his answer is, no, of course not. It's like, ha right? You can't do that with God either, right? God's like your husband. It works, it works really well because you, you, um, there's actually, I just saw, I was, uh, I was looking for um, you know, images for Triasar, and I came across this cartoon, this guy who's dressed kind of like a biblical prophet, he's sitting in a bar, and he's like, yeah, my wife, she's like, you know, faithless, whatever, he says, but she makes a great metaphor. <laughs> So it's and and it's 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 that um, that metaphor that actually leads to, on the one hand, some very harsh language from Hosea, but also some very beautiful language from Hosea. The idea of kind of uh, you know, um, the idea of I will take you out into the desert. Why? Because desert, the desert is the classic place. That's where it all started, and we're starting from nothing. Even if you think translated as wilderness, you're starting from nothing. And I'm going to take you back to that place of simplicity so we can be joined together again the way we should be. So there's some really wonderful things in Hosea where he's, he's calling out for that kind of intimate relationship with God. And he's the first prophet to do that, to see the relationship with God in that way. So Hosea um, ends in Yudalid Bet. He says, Shuva Yisrael at Hashem ki return. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God because you have failed in your sin. And towards the beginning of Yoel, in Perak Bet, Pasuk Yud Bet, he says, um, And now God says, return to me with all your hearts. Now, of course, that's interesting because in Yoel, classically, Yoel is a book you can split down the middle. First half, locusts. First half is all about locusts. And it's so extremely about locusts that some people say maybe he's really not talking about locusts. Maybe he's talking about invading armies. Because he talks about them like he's talking about invading armies. Um, however, he's, he's talking about, he seems to be talking about locusts. And the question is, why is he doing that? And that becomes clear in the second half of the book. Because in the second half of the book, he uses the same images to talk about Yom Hashem, right? The day of the Lord, this apocalyptic day where, where all the, the enemy nations are going to be destroyed. And what he seems to be saying is the same way that God will help us against the locusts, we can count on God in the end of days to help us then also. As an aside, we have a great article from a National Geographic in 1905. There was a reporter here in Jerusalem in 1905 during the great locust plague of 1905. And like any good reporter in 1905, he knew his Bible. And he's like, he literally writes an article where he's trying to interpret Yoel on the basis of what he sees around him. And this is what a locust plague looks like, so this could be what this verse means. So it's, it's yeah, it's, 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 it's really cool. Because like, you know, y'all talks about fires. He says, well, there's a certain stage in the locust life where they're in the trees and they're red. And it looks like the trees are flaming. Or maybe because that's one of the ways of keeping locusts back, is they used to burn. They used to you know, burn areas to keep the locusts back. Sorry, that's Yoel. So Yoel has a connection, has a has kind of a linguistic connection to the book before in this order, and it has a connection, more of a connection actually, um, towards its end. Because towards its end, it says um, in Dalat Tetzayin, "Vashem mitzion yishag umi yishulai mi ten kolo." 
that the Lord will, will war from Zion and will give forth his voice from Jerusalem. And in the very beginning of Amos, it says, Vayomer Hashem Itzion Yishakum Ten Kolo. Right? So there's exactly the same words in the beginning of Amos. So if you have a book, you don't know where it belongs, put it where it seems to kind of flow into the next book. Right? It seems to flow into the next book, and it makes sense with the next book. All these books were in a collection from very early on. If you look at what I brought um, from Chazal, it says... um, it says, uh, should not then Hosea come first? In other words, if Hosea prophesied first, according to the way Chazal understand it, why isn't he before Yeshayahu, Yermiyahu, and Yechezka? Why doesn't he show up there? And the answer is because since his book is so small, it might be lost. If you put him before these prophets that are usually in their own scroll because they're nice big prophets, you're going to lose his book. Now that seems to be the general rule for all of these books. All of these books, the reason we have them as a collection is because they're just, they're short. They don't necessarily have things in common, except that when you read them, they cross the entire gamut from our very first prophets, from the only northern book prophets that we have, Hosea and Amos, all the way to the return return to Zion at the very end of prophecy. Right? And that's Chagai, Zachariah, and Malachi. And but at the reason that they're all collected in one collection is because they're short. Because they didn't want, they needed to keep them all. And that's why we have them in one collection in Tanakh. We have them in one collection in the Septuagint. And also, if you look at, again, we're switching to the Order of the Minor Prophets. In Nachal Chever, we had a scroll of the translation in Greek. And what's interesting is they're translated into Greek in this scroll in Nachal Chever, but the order is much closer to what we call the Masoretic text, our Tanakh. Okay? There's Yonah, Michu, Micha, you can see Nachum is missing. Nachum is one of the books that doesn't have a date. Okay? Chavakuk, Svanya, and Zechariah later on. The Dead Sea Scrolls puts Yonah after Zechariah and Malachi. Why put Yonah after Zechariah and Malachi? The reason we have Yonah where we have it at least partially, is because Yonah has a date. How do, what? Yeah, it's Ninveh. <laughs> yeah, it's also in the Ninveh group. You could say it's, you know, yeah. See, the problem, it's actually Ovaja is the problem more than Yonah is the problem. It's more that Yonah, Ovaja is put there for Yonah more than Yonah is put there for the Ovaja because Ovaja is one of the books that's um, hard to date. Right, Ovaja is the one chapter book. Okay, if we just go by orders, we've done Hosea, Yoel, Amos. Amos is an amazing book. Amos is a guy who says the harshest things in the most beautiful language. Okay, Amos is probably a prophet from Judah that's gone up to Israel and he's trying to get them to worship right the correct God and worship correctly. And it and he also provides a window into how people thought of prophets and how prophecy worked in those days because he's prophesying and the the local priest, not really the local priest, the head priest for the Shamron, he says to him, you know, go go and let them feed. Let the, let them give you bread in, in Yehuda. In other words, you don't belong here. Let them let them feed you there. And he says that I'm not a prophet, or we always say, or the son of a prophet, right? Lo ben right? No, he's not saying that he's not the son of a prophet. He says I don't belong to the class of prophets. If you remember in Melachim, you read about Bnei Hanevi'im. There's this huge group called Bnei Hanevi'im, right? The sons of the prophets. And what it means is they're the members of the prophet class. The same way you would say Bnei, well, 
they're the members of the prophet prophetic guild. So what does what does it mean to be a Ben Navi? You you are one of the um you you would frequently belong to the Beit Hamikdash, and they're one of the group of prophets. We need a prophecy prophecy now. If you're getting your your uh, income from the king, you might want to say things that are gonna the king's gonna like, right? Um, if you any of you remember, there used to be um. Um, there used to be a series in, in you know, the cartoon Dry Bones? Yeah. So they used to have a series where there's there was a prophet. Was he, was it specifically supposed to be Yirmiyahu? I remember it was specifically supposed to be Yirmiyahu or it was supposed to be a prophet like Yirmiyahu who's constantly prophesying death and doom and the king just leaves him in the dungeon because no one likes to hear him. And so he brings him out of the dungeon and he says, here, I brought you out of the dungeon. What can you tell me? And he says, I see death and destruction. And he looks at the king and the king looks at him and he says to the king, back to the dungeon, huh? <laughs> and that's 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 what happens to prophets who don't sometimes who don't toe the party line. And what Amos is saying is, no, I don't belong to this guild of prophets. You think that I I need to go back to Huda to for them to give me my bread, for them to pay me? No, I have a profession. I'm not from the guild of prophets. This is what I I'm really prophesying here. What Amos, if you look at the book of Amos, Amos is very concerned with what prophecy he means. He say, can if God gives you his word, can you not prophesy? Right? If a if a lion roars in the in if a lion roars, won't you fear? And if God speaks, can you not prophesy? And for Amos, it's a big issue of what does prophecy mean? What does it mean to receive prophecy? What kind of choice is there? And how important is the prophet? So Amos, there's a lot to say about Amos, but I'm gonna move on. Um, so Ovaja is Ovaja is a book which is one chapter. Right and Ovadia. Anyone who's been in a class, someone teaches Ovadia. Every I don't maybe not every teacher does this, but they say and in Ovadia twelve it says and they he just they just wait they wait they wait for a student to say twelve what right <laughs> and then they're like ha 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 <laughs> it's got one chapter so you don't you never say Ovadia one you just say Ovadia and the and the and the verse and in fact it shares the first six the first six psukim are actually par- paralleled into something in Yirmiyahu. Um, with Ovaja, the question is, and it's all about Edom. Okay, it's all about how terrible Edom is. With Ovaja, the question is, what did Edom do that was so wrong? Because Edom didn't actually conquer us, right? You've got a whole a whole diatribe against Edom. What did they do? And the answer seems to be that we expected their allegiance because we have this kind of familial bond, this class, and instead they really turned on us. Now, actually, if you look at the uh, fragments that were found at Lachish, what you can see is that um, while we were under attack from all sides, they joined in. So just at the time when we couldn't defend ourselves uh, from the north, they were attacking us from the south and southeast. Um, so that there's a, on the one hand, they were doing that. On the other, they were also sitting on the road that if you were in, in, um, Jerusalem, one of the places you could, you could run was south. And they were right on that road. And they were apparently capturing people and giving them, giving them over. So that, that's, that's a possibility of why the betrayal, the betrayal, um, of Adam was felt so, so keenly. Um, <clears throat> and then we have Yonah. And Yonah is a book that if we had to say, okay, here's a collection that makes sense, Yonah doesn't belong. Why doesn't Yonah belong? 
Right, right. it's not a prophecy. And it's not about Israel. I mean, it's not, it's not about the kingdom of Israel. Oh, well, no, the kingdom of Israel, okay, so, so right, so, well, Hosea, yeah, it's not about right, Israel or Yehuda, right, it's not about, right, right, right. Right. So it that's true. There there are there are prophecies to the nations in like in the prophets. Like you have a whole section, you know, in in your meow with you. You have sections of prophecies to the nations. And the all always the question is, is did these prophecies ever get to these nations at all? Like was there a way to send it to the nations or did they just never hear about them? Um but uh right, right, and also it the whole thing's a story. It's a story. The, the prophecy part of it is nothing. You know, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overturned is not something that anyone who's listening cares about. And it's not, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story, the point of the, the book is the story of it. And possibly that's why in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's just kind of tacked on at the end. Right, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, they, they just kind of put in Yonah because you have to have it in the collection. You don't want it to get lost. But it doesn't really work with the other books. Right. If we want to say that Yona, we, we, we can take Yona, we can put him in a, um, we can put him in a uh, chronology because we have Yona in Milachim, so we know where he belongs in the chronology, and that's what we have in our Tanakh, more or less, more or less. Also, there's the um, there's the Ninveh connection, and then um, we pick up, and then once. So what, and then once we move on from Yonah, so we're we've, we're done. We don't have any more prophets of of Israel, and we're going to deal with Assyria, right? We're dealing with Assyria. We're still dealing with Assyria. Micha is prophesying around the same time as Ishayahu, and Micha is interesting because um, he's prophesying about the Assyrian destruction. If we read. One of the things that we forget frequently is that the Assyrian destruction, we think of the Assyrian destruction as just causing the exile of the northern kingdom. In fact, it absolutely devastated Judah. It completely devastated the countryside, right? When, when, um, when uh, Yeshayahu talks about Yerushalayim being like a hut, right? It's, 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 Yerushalayim is all that is left. Right, and that's kind of the setup for Yirmiyahu later on when Yirmiyahu is prophesying in Jerusalem, and they're all right. It can't be destroyed, and the reason is that it can't be destroyed is that what that's what they learned from the Assyrian conquest. They learned that the lesson they took from the Assyrian conquest is that even when there's a huge nation wiping through, they destroy everything else. Jerusalem's going to stand, and Yirmiyahu is arguing against that idea, right? But the reason they have that idea is the Assyrian conquest. With Micha, we see more of a description of what's going on around Jerusalem, and not only that, and this is really unique in Micha. In general, in the in if we look at the biblical books, what is the idea until we get to Yechezkel? Until we get to the time of Yechezkel. Right, which is which is really the Babylonian exile. What happens when someone sins? How do you get rid of it? How do you get rid of a sin? You bring a carbon, but but that doesn't get rid of it. That doesn't get rid of it. A sin, if you've sinned, it does it does some it does some atonement for the sin, but it doesn't get rid of the sin. God is merciful. Why? Because he stretches the sin out over generations. Right? He punishes for generations. In other words, he doesn't kill everyone now. He lets them survive because they have to be punished. They, they did a sin, and now the punishment's going to come. Why? Because sin does actual damage. If you think about a sin as doing actual damage, 
right? If that's the way you think about sin, then you can't just wipe it out so easily. It's like when if someone murders someone and they say, well, I feel really bad about it. You're like, well, that's great that you feel bad about it, but that person's dead. That person's not coming back to life. So if you think about that way in general, you think about sins in that way in general, then the idea of wiping out a sin is revolutionary. And that's why Yechezka, when he's presenting that idea, he says, he keeps on saying, you say it can't be so and I say it is so. Right? When Yechezkel brings this idea of just repent, if you repent, if you become repentant, leave your bad ways, and then you'll be fine and you won't die. And everyone, why don't people believe him? It sounds like a great message. And the answer is because everyone's, people are still thinking this way, that a sin does real damage. You can't just wipe it away. Micha is an exception. Micha is the one who says, God, throw our sins into the sea. Right? That's revolutionary. That's amazing. And that's why we quote him all over the place on Yom Kippur. It really is astounding that he has this idea at the time of Yeshayahu. Micha also has some great, um, is, is, uh, if you read through Micha, you, first of all, um, it was when I read through Micha that I understood the feminist approach to, to Bible study because, uh, there's this whole kind of, oh, we're struggling with the text. The text is hiding things from us. And I was like, well, you know, but in Micha, it says, and you were led out of Egypt by whom? By all three. These are the leaders. Your leaders out, going out of Egypt were Moshe, Aharon, and Miriam. Right? That wasn't, and, and it wasn't making a point. It was like everyone knows this. Everyone knows the three leaders taking everyone out of Egypt were these three people. So it was, it, it's, it, it's, uh, it's, um, describing another way that people just, um, uh, thought about, about the story of the Exodus, right? Uh, and, and of course, the reason, if you'll allow me, uh, for a second to, to head off of Judaism, um, the reason that uh, excuse me, that Jesus of Nazareth had to be born in Bethlehem, even though everyone knew he was Jesus of Nazareth, is because in Micha it says that the the future king, future Mashiach, is going to be born in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, and what does it mean? Of course, is that he's going to come from the Davidic line, which is from Bethlehem, right? But what that meant to the very earliest Christians who were Jews and who wanted to say that Jesus was the culmination of all the prophecies. It meant that Jesus, who everyone knew was Jesus of Nazareth, still had to be born in Bethlehem. So they come up with two different stories of how that happened. Right? Um, <clears throat> so Micha is also a, 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 uh, a good book. So Nachum is difficult. Nachum is dealing with the rise of Assyrian power. Um, and he deals with it as uh, as a witch, it draws a parallel with a, a witch. Uh, and you learn, people actually try to learn, from the book of Nachum, people try to learn what a trial of a witch or a woman who was accused of witchcraft actually would look like in those days. Because he describes certain things, certain kind of public humiliations. It's a, it's a metaphor that doesn't work very well. Um, and I think that, I think, I personally think that the reason he uses the metaphor is because he thinks of a witch as the witch as the epitome of illegitimate power. In other words, she's 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 a woman. Uh, she's a witch. She, she shouldn't have power. She does have power, and so she's the epitome of illegitimate power. No one could say that these empires that were rising did not have power. They clearly had power. 
Um, but it's completely illegitimate. Just because they have power doesn't mean it comes from a good place. I, 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 that's my interpretation. You can read it and, and, and decide for yourselves. It, it's not a very pleasant read, though. Um, uh, Chava Cook is amazing. <laughs> every one of these, almost every one of these books I'm going to say it's amazing. But, but Chava Cook, um, what's interesting about Chava Cook is that he actually says, he actually says, how can this be? We see there are wicked people. They are doing well. We see that they're righteous people. They are hurting. How can this be? Is this called justice? Is this what it's about? Where are you? And the answer, which is very disturbing, is ha ha ha, just wait. Right? Because <laughs> now, now you're going to have Bab- Babylonians on the rise, and now everything's going to go to hell. Right? So the question is how is this an answer? And that is that's the, that's the big question of Habakkuk. Is this meant to be an answer? Or is this simply meant to be the questions even bigger than you thought? Right? It, 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 it's this is the world now. Right? Um, but you can see it. You absolutely can see it as an answer. If you read the book, you can see it as an answer. But, um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, fast, it's fascinating in that way. Uh, Tzvanya is around the time of Yirmiyahu. Uh, it's interesting because, um, unlike many of the other prophetic books, which sees, well, to me it's interesting. Other things are interesting, maybe it's Svanya also, but to me it's interesting because one of the things that I find fascinating in the move from the biblical prophets to Second Temple Judaism is that when biblical prophecy, uh, particularly because the nation of, you could say nation of Israel or, or let's say Judah after, after Israel is, um, is exiled, Everyone is, everyone has the same fate. In other words, if you live in the same area, then whatever happens in that area is going to affect everyone. And you really see that with the prophets. They don't seem, they don't say, well, if you're righteous, you're going to uh, escape this really bad thing that's coming, right? They'll have things like there's a remnant, there's a this, but it doesn't seem to, your righteousness is not going to save you if the whole nation has done badly enough that a big punishment has come. It's gonna, going to affect everyone. It's just going to be awful for everyone, right? Um, and that's one of the things that Amos says, don't, don't ask for the, for the day of the Lord, right? It's like you run, running for a bear and you go into the house and then there's a snake that bites you and you're not getting away. Um, but Svanya doesn't see it that way. Svanya is, is possibly the one biblical prophet who does think that if you're righteous, you have a good chance of making, you, you, they're, they're the righteous and there are the wicked. Now that idea is something we see as taken for granted in the Second Temple period. And I would say it's taken for granted because you're already talking about a nation that's divided. A nation that doesn't necessarily think of itself as divided, but their realities are divided. You have the people in Judah, you have the people in Alexandria, the Jews in different areas, different things happen to them. And they, this is their reality now. So now they think in terms of, if you're righteous, I'm righteous, that person's wicked, you know, the, the fire's gonna hit his house, it's not gonna hit mine. Cause they're already living in a reality where a big pun, something horrible can happen to one whole group of Jews and not affect the other group of Jews. Cause we're already talking about a, a, um, a nation that lives in the diaspora, a nation that very much sees itself as a nation and continues to see itself as a nation while many, many, many of them live in, a dia- in the diaspora. <clears throat> and speaking of, you know, the diaspora, then we have Chagai, Zachariah, and Malachi, which are dealing with the return to, to Zion. What's interesting 
is that well we have Chagai and Zachariah, which is the very is the beginning of the return to Zion. Malachi, there's already a standing Beit Hamikdash. There's already a standing Beit Hamikdash, um, and but it, but it's not doing well. Now, if you remember what I said about Yoel, Yoel is the question is when is Yoel from? Because Yoel is looking back at a destruction, some kind of destruction, some kind of um, national you know destruction, and and yet. He's referring to a, a temple that's alive and well and standing, and no one's worried about how crappy the sacrifices are, which is which is Malachi's big concern, right? Um, so the, the the question with Yoel remains, um, and and what's interesting with Chagai, Zachariah, and Malachi, if we talk about Hosea as being the first book prophet, right? Uh, Chagai, Zachariah, and Malachi have to be the last prophets. What do I mean by they have to be the last prophets? Um, there is a very strong tradition, right, that Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi sealed prophecy. After them, there was no more prophecy. So we can have, um, um, so we can have a book afterwards that's important, but we can't consider it prophetic. Now, in fact, that becomes an organizing principle for all of Tanakh. What do I mean? For all of our Tanakh. People will frequently ask me, because I work on Second Temple works and because I talk about the Septuagint and I'll talk about the Apocrypha and I'll say, say something about how important, let's say, Second Maccabees is, and people are like, well, why didn't it make it in? Or I'll talk about how important Ben Sira is. Ben Sira is even quoted by Chazal as being authoritative. Um, and, and the question is, why? so why didn't it make it in? And the answer is, if it was definitively composed after Chagai, Zachariah, and Malachi, it cannot make it in to the Judean Tanakh. It cannot, because it can't really have been written with, a, with the spirit of prophecy. If it's after them, it could not be written with the spirit of a true spirit of prophecy. That doesn't mean it's not important. That doesn't mean you can't read it. That doesn't mean you can't think it's great, even. Yes, yeah. Is that uh, in the Talmud, there's passages about other books that are now revealed. Yes. And there's a debate as to whether their work of Absolutely. Right. So a book could enter the canon, but not be part of the Vivian. Oh, right. So I'm actually talking about, okay, so let me be a little bit more specific. I actually am including those books. So what do I mean? Why isn't Ben Sira in the Ketuvim? And Daniel, Daniel, which is a much, it was a very strange book, and it, and it, and any, any, um, any academic scholar you talk to is going to put Daniel in the Second Temple period, okay? But Daniel places itself in the Persian period. In other words, it places itself before Chagai, Zachariah, and Malachi. If you believe the dating that that the Book of Daniel itself gives you, you believe that it's before Chagai, Zachariah, and Malachi, okay? So it makes it in. Esther also. Makes it in. What doesn't make it in? Ben Sira doesn't make it in because everyone knew. Everyone knew Ben Sira's grandson translated that book to Greek, and he, everyone knew when it was. Ben Sira lived during the Ptolemaic period, in when the Ptolemaic period in Judah. Excuse me. Uh, and Ezra, uh, Chagai were long dead when Ezra and the. But Malachi, Malachi, it's Chagai Zachariah and Malachi. So the the idea is that Malachi and so they're, they're long they're long before Malachi. Malachi is talking when there's a the functioning a functioning Beit Hamikdash. It's a functioning Beit Hamikdash, and exactly when Malachi speaks, we don't know. We just know there's a functioning Beit Hamikdash, and it's not doing too well. That's what we know from Malachi. Yeah. The difference I'm getting at is that Malachi postdates Ezra and Nehemiah. 
look, I, the truth is, if you if you show me a, a something in Chazal that doesn't say that, they'll be like, okay, you know. But the the general idea is, and also the um um the idea of Ezra and Nehemiah that it deals with the same period as Chagai Zachariah and Malachi. It's it's in the, more or less the same period, whether it's whether it's a few years after or whether whether it continues to slightly after. But it doesn't. It's not off. In fact, in fact, the whole question of you know where did you like. It, it, it's it's not it's not way off from Malachi. Put it that way. It, it's it's more. That's right, right. One, he 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 he's, he could be anybody. He's got to be in the beginning of Bayit Cheney, though. So so that's what happens. He's got to be in the beginning of Bayit Cheney. So anyone who is and Ezra and Nehemiah are also part of what we call Shivat Zion, right? The return to Zion. They're part of that that kind of. It's generation isn't correct, but that that time range. So. That group and why? So, like you said, if, if Malachi is way after Chagai and Zachariah, but we say Chagai, Zachariah, and Malachi in one breath, right? That's we always talk about them in the same breath, right? Oh, just for those of you who don't know, Zachariah is the prophet with all the visions, right? Um, you know, and and also what's important about Zachariah is, of course, he's the Zachariah is the source for what symbol? Well, the menorah with the with the with the with the olive branches next to it. The menorah with the olive branches next to it. That menorah that we use for, as a symbol of Israel. The menorah itself, the menorah that we use in that symbol, is actually taken from um, uh, Titus's arch. That's where they take that. It not on. It's not based on Zachariah's description of the menorah. It's 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 Titus's arch because the idea is we've reversed it. In other words, the, the menorah that they took out, we're returning. So it's based on the menorah that's depicted on Titus's arch, and the uh, olive branches on either side is taken from Zachariah's vision. Um, even though Zachariah's vision was probably it was actually probably two olive trees, and those were referring to to the dual leadership of. A you know kind of a, a king and a priest that would lead that would lead uh, Israel. So the, so the idea is that so what we're asked in the Septuagint we kept all sorts of books that were clearly important books that talked about the history um, of Israel or or were were books that had some kind of religious content, but were also some of them were just. Um, would would be very hard to place in historical context. For example, the book of Judith, which is in the Septuagint, almost seems to the way it the way it dates itself, it almost seems to want you to say this has to be false. Like it dates itself in a way you can't be. And um um it and it actually seems to reflect that the reality of the um, Hasmonean revolt. Um but so so no one who was putting together a Tanakh was going to include a book like Judith that had a that that was presenting itself as as done during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Assyria. Like, okay, this is clearly wrong, right? Um, but it, it would if you believed it, but it would it made itself so falsifiable. And I think I personally think that either whoever composed it, or whoever put that up, uh, that kind of that introduction on it wanted you to realize that that's not when it was from and wanted you to read it as kind of a, we're going to pretend that it was from way back then, but really it's talking about the situation of the, of the, of the Hasmonean revolt. And in fact, everyone, if you ask someone, when is the book of Judith from, they're going to say it's the story of Hanukkah, right? That's, that's what they're going to say. And, and um, without, without having read it and realizing that it's almost trying to place itself into a much earlier period. But in a in a kind of a weird way. Um, 
But anyway, so the idea that Chagah and Zechariah Malachi and prophecy is so strong that in in Second Temple works, and uh, Alex Jason wrote a book on this, but Dead, the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, they are doing things that normally would be considered prophecy, but they don't call it prophecy, right? They, they only use the word prophets when they're saying, oh, they're false prophets, right? Those other guys are false prophets, right? Even, you know, and so it there's, a, there's an idea that we can see there that, in fact, there's no more prophecy. You can't call what's going on now prophecy. And to call it that would be wrong. And that's interesting. And Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi kind of and that period. So Treasar, we have Hosea, our first book prophet, and we have our definitive, right, last book prophets. So I'm going to, I hope, start a series after Purim where we actually open the books and read it. Excuse me for this very kind of like just jumping from book to book. But um, after after Purim, and there will be a break for Pesach, um, we'll go into each book so we look and see what each what each one does and reflects uh historically and also in terms of the ideas that that they're that they're dealing with well that was the lecture i hope you enjoyed it stay tuned for my more in-depth treasar minor prophets lectures we're going to begin with hosea and then continuing on in order and those will also be posted as recordings look forward to hearing from you and stay tuned You've been listening to Topics in the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.